the city of elephants which is governed by the great god of idleness who lives on the top of a hill the history of three great discoveries and the naughty children of ikike this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by patrick wallace the city of elephants which is governed by the great god of idleness who lives on the top of a hill the history of three great discoveries and the naughty children of ikike letter number three in from sea to sea by rudyard kipling librivox coffee break collection number seven i built my soul a lordly pleasure house wherein at ease for a to dwell i said o soul make merry and carouse dear soul for all is well so much for making definite programmes of travel beforehand in my first letter i told you that i would go from rangoon to penang direct now we are lying off mulmain in a new steamer which does not seem to run anywhere in particular why she should go to mulmain is a mystery but as every soul on the ship is a loafer like myself no one is discontented imagine a shipload of people to whom time is no object who have no desires beyond three meals a day and no emotions save those caused by a casual cockroach Mulmain is situated up the mouth of a river which ought to flow through south america and all manner of dissolute native craft appear to make the place their home ugly cargo steamers that the initiated call geordie tramps grunt and bellow at the beautiful hills all around and the pot-bellied british india liners wallow down the reaches visitors are rare in Mulmain so rare that few but cargo boats think it worth their while to come off from the shore strictly in confidence i will tell you that mulmain is not a city of this earth at all sinbad the sailor visited it if you recollect on that memorable voyage when he discovered the burial ground of the elephants as the steamer came up the river we were aware of first one elephant and then another hard at work in timber yards that faced the shore a few narrow-minded folk with binoculars said that there were mahouts upon their backs but this was never clearly proven i prefer to believe in what i saw a sleepy town just one house thick scattered along a lovely stream and inhabited by slow solemn elephants building stockades for their own diversion there was a strong scent of freshly sawn teak in the air we could not see any elephants sawing and occasionally the warm stillness was broken by the crash of the log when the elephants had got an appetite for luncheon they loafed off in couples to their club and did not take the trouble to give us greeting in the latest mail papers at which we were much disappointed but took heart when we saw upon a hill a large white pagoda surrounded by scores of little pagodas this we said with one voice is the place to make an excursion to and then shuddered at our own profanity for above all things we did not wish to behave like mere vulgar tourists the tikagaris at mulmain are three sizes smaller than those of rangoon as the ponies are no bigger than decent sheep their drivers trot them up hill and down and as the gari is extremely narrow and the roads are anything but good the exercise is refreshing here again all the drivers are madrasis i should better remember what that pagoda was like had i not fallen deeply and irrevocably in love with a burmese girl at the foot of the first flight of steps only the fact of the steamer starting next noon prevented me from staying at Mulmain for ever and owning a pair of elephants. These are so common that they wander about the streets and, I make no doubt, 
could be obtained for a piece of sugar-cane. Leaving this far too lovely maiden, I went up the steps only a few yards, and, turning me round, looked upon a view of water, island, broad river, fair grazing ground, and belted wood, that made me rejoice that I was alive. The hillside, below me and above me, was ablaze with pagodas, from a gorgeous golden and vermilion beauty, to a delicate grey stone one just completed in honour of an eminent priest lately deceased at Mandalay. Far above my head there was a faint tinkle, as of golden bells, and a talking of the breezes in the tops of the toddy palms. Wherefore I climbed higher and higher up the steps, till I reached a place of great peace, dotted with Burmese images, spotlessly clean. Here women now and again paid reverence. They bowed their heads and their lips moved, because they were praying. I had an umbrella, a black one in my hand, deck shoes upon my feet and a helmet upon my head. I did not pray. I swore at myself for being a globe-trotter, and wished that I had enough Burmese to explain to these ladies that I was sorry, and would have taken off my hat but for the sun. A globe-trotter is a brute. I had the grace to blush as I tramped round the pagoda. That will be remembered to me for righteousness. But I stared horribly at a golden-red sign-temple, with a beautifully gilt image of Buddha in it, at the grim figures in the niche at the base of the main pagoda, at the little palms that grew out of the cracks in the tiled paving of the court, at the big palms above, and at the low-hung bronze bells that stood at each corner for the women to smite with stag-horns. Upon one bell rang this amazing triplet in English, evidently the composition of the caster who completed his work, and now let us hope has reached Niban, thirty-five years ago. He who destroyed this bell, they must be in the great hell, spelt with one L, and unable to coming out. I respect a man who is not able to spell hell properly. It shows that he has been brought up in an amiable creed. You who come to Moulmain, treat this bell with respect, and refrain from playing with it, for that hurts the feelings of the worshippers. In the base of the pagoda were four rooms, lined as to three sides with colossal plaster figures, before each of whom burned one solitary dip, whose rays fought with the flood of evening sunshine that came through the windows, and the room was filled with a pale yellow light, unearthly to stand in. Occasionally a woman crept into one of these rooms to pray, but nearly all the company stayed in the courtyard. But those that faced the figures prayed more zealously than the others, so I judged that their troubles were the greater. Of the actual cult I knew less than nothing, for the neatly bound English books that we read make no mention of pointing red-tipped straws at a golden image, or of the banging of bells after the custom of worshippers in a Hindu temple. It must be a genial one, however. To begin with, it is quiet, and carried on among the fairest possible surroundings that ever landscape offered. In this particular case, the massive white pagoda shot into the blue from the west of a walled hill that commanded four separate and desirable views, as you looked either at the steamer and the river below, the polished silver reaches to the left, the woods to the right, or the roofs of Mulmain to the landward. Between each pause of the rustling of dresses and the low-toned talk of the women fell, from far above, the tinkle of innumerable metal leaves which were stirred by the breeze as they hung from the tea of the pagoda. A golden image winked in the sun, 
the painted ones stared straight in front of them over the heads of the worshippers, and somewhere below a mallet and a plane were lazily helping to build yet another pagoda in honour of the Lord of the Earth. Sitting in meditation while the professor went round with a sacrilegious camera to the vast terror of the Burmese youth, I made two notable discoveries, and nearly went to sleep over them. The first was that the Lord of the Earth is idleness, thick slab idleness with a little religion stirred in to keep it sweet, and the second was that the shape of the pagoda came originally from a bulging toddy palm trunk. There was one between me and the far-off skyline, and it exactly duplicated the outlines of a small grey stone building. Yet a third discovery, and a much more important one, came to me later on. A dirty little imp of a boy ran by, clothed more or less in a beautifully worked silk puzzo, the like of which I had in vain attempted to secure at Rangoon. A bystander told me that such an article would cost 110 rupees, exactly 10 rupees in excess of the price demanded at Rangoon, when I had been discourteous to a pretty Burmese girl with diamonds in her ears, and had treated her as though she were a Delhi box-waller. Professor, said I, when the camera spidered round the corner, there is something wrong with this people. They won't work, they aren't all dacoits, and their babies run around with hundred rupees putzos on them, while their parents speak the truth. How in the world do they get a living? They exist beautifully, said the professor, and I only brought half a dozen plates with me. I shall come again in the morning with some more. Did I ever dream of a place like this? No, said I, it's perfect, and for the life of me I can't quite see where the precise charm lies. In its beastly laziness, said the professor, as he packed the camera, and we went away, regretfully, haunted by the voices of many wind-blown bells. Not ten minutes from the pagoda we saw a real British bandstand, a shanty labelled Municipal Office, a collection of PWD bungalows that in vain strove to blast the landscape, and a Madras band. I had never seen Madrasi troops before. They seem to dress just like Tommies and have an air of much culture and refinement. It is said that they read English books and know all about their rights and privileges. For further details apply to the Pegu Club, a second table from the top on the right-hand side as you enter. In an evil hour, I attempted to revive the drooping trade of Moulmain, and to this end bound a native of the place to come on board the steamer next morn with a collection of Burmese silks. It was only a five minutes pull, and he could have sat in the stern all the while. Morning came, but not the man. Not a boat of watermelons, pink fleshy watermelons, neared the ship. We might have been in quarantine. As we slipped down the river on our way to Penang, I saw the elephants playing with the teak logs as solemnly and as mysteriously as ever. They were the chief inhabitants, and for aught I know, the rulers of the place. Their lethargy had corrupted the town, and when the professor wished to photograph them, I believe they went away in scorn. We're now running down to Penang with the thermometer 87 degrees in the cabins and anything you please on deck. We have exhausted all our literature, drunk 200 lemon squashes, played 40 different games of cards, patience mostly, organised a lottery on the run, had it been a thousand rupees instead of ten I shouldn't have won it, and slept 17 hours out of the 24. It is perfectly impossible to write but you may be morally the better for the story of the bad people of Iquique, which, as you have not before heard, I will now proceed to relate, 
It has just been told me by a German orchid hunter, fresh from nearly losing his head in the Lushai Hills, who has been over most of the world. Iquique is somewhere in South America, at the back of or beyond Brazil, and once upon a time there came to it a tribe of aborigines from out of the woods, so innocent that they wore nothing at all, absolutely nothing at all. They had a grievance, but no garments, and the former they came to lay before His Excellency the Governor of Iquique. But the news of their coming and their exceeding nakedness had gone before them, and good Spanish ladies of the town agreed that the heathen should first of all be clothed. So they organised a sewing bee, and the result, which was mainly aprons, was served out to the bad people with hints as to its use. Nothing could have been better. They appeared in their aprons before the governor, and all the ladies of Iquique ranged on the steps of the cathedral, only to find that the governor could not grant their demands. And you know what these children of nature did? In the twinkling of an eye they had off those aprons, slung them round their necks, and were dancing naked as the dawn before the scandalised ladies of Iquique, who fled with their fans before their eyes into the sanctuary of the cathedral. And when the steps were deserted, the bad people withdrew, shouting and leaping, their aprons still around their necks, for good cloth is valuable property. They encamped near the town, knowing their own power. It was impossible to send the military against them, and equally impossible that donors and senoritas should be exposed to the chance of being shocked whenever they went abroad. No one knew at what hour the bad people would sweep through the streets. Their demands were therefore granted, and Iquique had rest. Nuda est veritas, et prevalebit. But, said I, what is there so awful in a naked Indian, or two hundred naked Indians, for that matter? My friends, said the German, they was Indians of South America. I tell you, they do not themselves strip well. I put my hand on my mouth and went away. End of The City of Elephants, which is governed by the great god of idleness who lives on the top of a hill. The history of three great discoveries and the naughty children of Iquique. Letter number three in From Sea to Sea by Rudyard Kipling. Read by Patrick Wallace.